Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In The Fisherman and the Dragon, Kirk Wallace Johnson, author of The Feather Thief, tackles another off-the-beaten-path story of white fishermen and Vietnamese shrimpers clashing on the Texas coast in the 1970s and 80s. And he weaves it into a gripping narrative with surprising relevance to today. He explores such timely themes as racism, xenophobia, the oranges of the modern white supremacist movement, also fallout from American wars and the plight of refugees, and climate change and shrinking natural resources. Kirk Wallace Johnson's author previously, as I mentioned, of The Feather Thief, also to be a friend is fatal. He's the founder of the List Project to resettle Iraqi allies, which he started after serving with the USAID in uh, Fallujah. And uh, his writing has appeared with The New Yorker, New York Times, and This American Life, among others. He's a senior fellow at the USC Annenberg Center on Communication, Leadership, and Policy. Kirk Wallace Johnson, pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, this is a fascinating story with a lot of relevant themes, even though this uh, takes place mainly in the 70s and, and 80s. Uh, how did you uh, encounter this this fascinating history? Uh, entirely by accident, honestly. Um, I, I, It's a kind of personal but meaningful story, but the, the day that my dad died uh, in December 2018, um, I, he had died of cancer that was spurred by his exposure to Agent Orange uh, during his deployment to Vietnam, the 101st Airborne. And I was here in Los Angeles, and I told my wife, it just it felt strange to sit around at, at home as though it were a normal day. And I just had this kind of uncontrollable need to go fishing because my, my dad taught me how to fish, and it was something that we did a lot together. And so I threw my my gear in the trunk and I drove up into the the southern Sierra Nevadas to go fly fishing that day and um, I had the radio on on the drive but I wasn't really listening to it until the song by Bruce Springsteen came on called Galveston Bay and it he started singing about a, a Vietnamese refugee who had ended up in Galveston Bay and was trying to rebuild his life as a shrimper and then all of a sudden found himself staring down these threats from the Ku Klux Klan and others. And throughout the day, as I was sort of starting the morning process of, of my dad's passing, I, the song just kept popping into my head because it was such a strange premise. I didn't know what he was talking about. Um, but that little grain there is what you know kept popping back into my mind until I, I started doing some research and I realized that it it wasn't a fictional premise. It's a true story, and, and shockingly, nobody had, had written about it yet. Um, so that, that's really, I, I never thought I'd say this, but I, I owe a great deal of thanks to Bruce Springsteen for writing <laughs> that song. <laughs> yeah, uh, he'd encountered, I guess, at least the outlines of the story, yeah. So I'm, well, I'm glad you were listening to that story. This is a fascinating uh, history. Uh, this also has connection to uh, a previous book, right, and and work that you have done over the years, uh, helping to resettle uh, refugees. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think. You know, I think there are. I'm a nonfiction author now, but I think there's a kind of uh, there's an expectation that we're supposed to say that we have zero biases going into any project. And I guess I should just say up front that uh, it, to the extent that I had a bias going into this project, it's that I believe uh, in the U.S. 
commitment to helping refugees, especially those who are fleeing our own disastrous wars. And, and I, as you said, I have a personal connection to this. I, I lost many of my Iraqi colleagues um, who were assassinated because they worked with the Americans. And then I spent, uh, well, over a decade of my life fighting the U.S. government on their behalf to get visas for, for both the Iraqis and for Afghans. And so the whole time that I was kind of waging that battle, um, I was often confronted with Americans who felt like, oh, these, they're just coming here to take our jobs, or they should just stay there and and fight and die for their country. And I had to keep saying, well, they're, you know, they're getting killed for the United States, not for not because they're, you know, I mean, that, that's, the, that's the simple reason why they have the target on their back. But the whole time that I was doing this work, Vietnam was always hanging over my, my head because a lot of my mentors were, were old Vietnam hands that had, you know, helped in the evacuation during the fall of Saigon. And, and you know, after that chaos in 75, we eventually brought, many hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese out. We did the right thing after doing the wrong thing at first. And so I was always studying that, but I had never really paid attention to what happened to the Vietnamese after they got here until until this story. Mm. Um, and I, I was reading an interview you gave to your publisher. You you said you had never really studied how they fared after making it to America. I guess. And that's kind of where the history stops. You know, we we pay attention to... Uh, you know, many thousands of Vietnamese coming to the U.S. after the war. Um, this follows at least one small group of of those refugees who settled in uh, in Texas, took up uh, you know fishing, and uh, and then that led to conflicts down the road. That's right. This was a you know within within just a few months of the fall of Saigon, we had brought around a hundred and. 30,000 uh, Vietnamese out in the first wave. And the, the largest community resettled in Southern California, and the second largest was in Houston and the Gulf, the Texas Gulf Coast area, because I think the climate was familiar to them, but also many of them were, were fishermen. Uh, they were shrimpers and crabbers back home. And so they, they end up in Galveston and in a, a number of these small towns on that coastline, and they start pooling their money together uh, to buy boats. And at first, you've got to understand that, like, in the mid to late 70s, we're in this period of the great inflation. There's gas shortages. There's spiking fuel prices. And there's a kind of, you know, malaise was like the term of the decade, you know. And, and so at first, the white fishermen that had traditionally dominated this industry were often elated that the Vietnamese were there because they unloaded these decrepit boats on the refugees at five or ten times the true value, sort of playing them for suckers. But the Vietnamese did everything right. They, they fixed these boats up. They used the family members as, as deckhands rather than hire someone else. They ate the fish that white people consider junk fish from the bays in order to cut down on costs. And within a few years, they were so effective they were such a, an economic force at crabbing and shrimping that a lot of the white fishermen panicked and they 
ran to the Texas governor, and they begged him for a ban on refugees. And this is in 1980, 1981. And when that failed, the, the Ku Klux Klan entered, entered the fray, and, and this kicked off a pretty ghastly campaign of, of, of violence and, and harassment uh, of the Vietnamese community. I want to have you tell a bit of that story um, and tell me about a few of the you know the the major characters here. First of all, the, uh, in parallel here, there's an ecological ecological disaster happening, right? That's right. Yeah, you know there was a this was one of the more revelatory, I guess, aspects of writing this book is that I started going down to Texas pretty regularly and because uh, I I was finding a lot of these. Klansmen and their allies and the Vietnamese and I, and I, I, I thought that this was initially going to be a book about this kind of forgotten episode of white supremacy in America and anti-refugee violence and all of this. And when you go and look back at the coverage from back then, it, you know, it's always a turf. It's always described as a turf war. It's a, you know between these two camps. There was only one side that was really warring, the white side. But then I, I soon realized that everyone was describing this as a turf war, but no one was paying attention to the turf itself. And this is the, especially at the time of the right uh, of of when the book takes place, this is the most toxic water in America. This is the heart of the petrochemical industry. Oil discovered in Texas, 1903, and by the mid-century, there were these sprawling plants all along that Texas coastline refining oil, you know, creating plastic, um, you know, resins, all kinds of industrial chemicals. And in order to do that, they were impounding the fresh water from the rivers that were that was feeding the bays um, and also getting discharge permits from the Texas government, from, from the EPA, to, to dump that fresh water into the bays loaded up with toxic stuff. And so you have this kind of landscape of, you know, oil is God. Um, pipelines all over the the seabeds. We poured concrete all over the estuaries where the where the shrimp and and the crabs. It's part of their life cycle. And lo and behold, the fishermen start pulling up less and less from their nets. Um, there's massive, you know, uh, there was a massive historic um, oil drill blowout just across the border in the Bay of Campeche in Mexico. That was 10 months before they were able to stop that, that well. Um, that was the largest oil spill in world history until the BP spill. All kinds of tanker collisions. And so I, the reason why I'm laying all of this out is that you have a, uh, an industry of fishing, shrimping and crabbing, that is basically, it's, it's sad to say this, but it's basically doomed by the sort of, helter-skelter march of man to to build more of these plants and to extract more of these natural resources. And there were all of these huge structural forces that were kind of consigning this once idyllic way of life to the dustbin. And and yet when the white people were, were faced with all of this, when the white fishermen were faced with all of this, they looked at this tiny number of refugees that came in and they said, they're the problem. They're the reason why everything's gone wrong. If we can just get rid of them, everything's going to be great again. Mm. 
So this this has resonance to t- today. I guess it's part of human nature. I guess you could say. What, what would you say? Why? You know, I, I guess you pick on the foe that you can uh, maybe <laughs> win against or control because there, you know, there were some people at the time. We we look back on this and 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 see. Okay, of course, it's the. You know, it's it, it's the environmental problem that's the major culprit here. But at the time, there were you know there were some people who were suspecting, hey, there's a problem with the environment. But the by and large, the you know, the white fishermen picked on the refugees. That's exactly right. I think there's it's a it's a couple couple things you just raised. One, I remember a fish house uh, owner saying like, yeah, there's all these other problems going on, but the Vietnamese are quite literally the only problem that they can get their hands on, uh, they being the white fishermen. So there is a kind of like, you know, kicking down going on. But also, um, these plants are the single largest employer along the entire coastline there, the the petrochemical plants. Um, and, I mean, having been to many, many of these little towns, there, there's, you know, in Sea Drift, which is the town where the book begins, it's just a, 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 a ghost town now. All there is is these there, these, there are these huge plants that everyone works at. Main Street, there's not a single shop that isn't boarded over. And so when the catch isn't good, if it's a bad season out on the water, as a shrimper or a crabber, the only economic opportunities you have are to go and work at those very plants. And so there were many instances of shrimpers and crabbers that were pulling up mutated specimens of, of misshapen crabs and shrimp and seeing dolphin die-offs and strange things like alligators rolling zombie-like near the, near the surface. Um, and they, a lot of them suspected these massive chemical plants, but then when you're you know, when your when your mortgage is paid by those plants, um, when your health insurance and your kids' health insurance comes from those plants, it's hard to really accept that, much less to fight it. I want to have you talk to me a little bit about um, what happened, which is essentially the Klan came in, right? Uh, Ku Klux Klan. This, you know, you could see this perhaps going it could have gone a different way right the, the the conflict between the the white fishermen and the vietnamese um you know you can see that happening the the white fishermen see them the vietnamese as a, a threat to their their uh, livelihoods their way of life um the clan came in and ramped up the racism though um do you think that was inevitable and, and, and why why does that happen do you think well it that was one of the the first kind of mysteries when I when I started out investigating this story, which was why on earth did the Ku Klux Klan involve itself in in this conflict? Um, and I I think I think I've solved it or solved a piece of it, which was that um, these tensions had been brewing for for several years, but it wasn't until one episode uh, in this tiny town of Sea Drift, where a, a white crabber named Billy Joe Applin, uh, who was just down on his luck, um, had had a run-in with an 18-year-old Vietnamese crabber named Sao Van Nguyen. There was a dispute where 
Billy Joe thought that this grabber had dropped his traps in too close to his. This is one of the quote-unquote written rules of the bay, and he didn't like that. And so he smashed the trap up and kind of threatened him. And over the course of the subsequent month, um, after they had had this altercation out on the water, every time Billy Joe saw Sao, the young Vietnamese guy, he would tell him he's going to kill him. He raised a rifle at him at one point. He slashed his tires. And Sao goes and gets himself a pistol from Walmart because he's worried for his safety. And this all culminates one night down at the docks when Billy Joe starts pummeling him, takes a knife out, cuts Sao across the chest. Sao pulls his, his pistol and shoots Billy Joe dead. All the Vietnamese fled town that night as this white posse roamed around firebombing Vietnamese homes and boats. Um, and there was this expectation that that young Vietnamese man would be given the death penalty, but kind of astonishingly, an all-white jury in a very conservative part of the state acquitted him on grounds of lawful self-defense. And, you know, I thought, okay, well, that's the end of that story. It's, you know, chapter closed. But within a day of that verdict, the Ku Klux Klan entered, entered the fight, and they started alleging that there was a conspiracy and that evidence had been hidden and all of this. And it wasn't until two years ago that I, when I was sitting across from Billy Joe Applin's widow that, that she confessed to me that they had joined the Ku Klux Klan a year prior to his killing. And it had taken her almost 40 years to acknowledge that and to kind of solve that mystery. So why did the Klan get involved? Because one of their own had been killed by a Vietnamese refugee in lawful self-defense. And so then after that, that white crabber became a martyr up and down the coast, and the Klan, and any time they, they involved themselves in this, the Grand Dragon suddenly, of the Klan, he found himself on, you know, national nightly news with Walter Cronkite, and every time he was on the news, he would get new members who would pay dues and strengthen his organization, and so it was a sort of, you know, rinse and repeat model here, where he just, he was doing whatever he could to whip up these tensions between these two groups. We need to uh, go to our first break here uh, soon, but I just want to mention in passing here, uh, Billy Joe Applin, the the man who was killed, um, uh, he had not only noticed, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you noticed a deformed crab, was it? Or he, He's mm-hmm. highly suspected, as several did, that uh, these oil spills and such were, were causing environmental damage. And uh, I think he tried to, to rally his fellow crabbers, right? That's exactly right. He, he made a really earnest effort to to build a kind of legal defense fund to take on these plants, and he didn't, I don't think he raised a, a single dime um, in this effort. Yeah, it would be only later that we'll, we'll talk about a, a fascinating uh, woman called Diane Wilson, who who did have uh, more success a little bit later. I, I think, mm-hmm. was it, did Billy Joplin try to recruit Diane Wilson at that point and was unsuccessful? Uh, I, I don't believe, I think Diane was, uh, still maybe college age. And, ah, okay. And, and so she was, I think she was about a, a decade younger than him or so. Um, but um, uh, but they, they were separately kind of nursing their their suspicions about what was causing these, these die-offs and these mutations in the Bay. Yeah. Well, uh, following a break, I'll have you introduce us to uh, Louis Beam, Jr., 
Um, he's uh, uh, unfortunately. Uh, he became an inspirational figure, right, for, for current generations of uh, right-wing extremists. We'll talk about Morris Dees as well, founder of the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, who got involved in this, um, and uh, other uh, key figures in this fascinating story. Uh, the book is out now, and it's called The Fisherman and the Dragon. The author, Kirk Wallace-Johnson, is with us. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, hearing a fascinating story today. You can read it in full in a new book called The Fisherman and the Dragon. The subtitle is Fear, Greed, and the Fight for Justice on the Gulf Coast. Kirk Wallace Johnson, author previously of The Feather Thief, uh, tackles uh, this story. White fishermen and Vietnamese shrimpers uh, clashing on the Texas coast in the 1970s and 80s, and this has resonance to today, themes such as racism, xenophobia, the origins of the modern right supremacist movement, a fallout from American wars, plight of refugees, also climate change and shrieking natural resources. Uh, so we're grateful to Kirk Wallace Johnson for giving us some time on the program uh, today. Uh, so you told us uh, there was a killing uh, here, and this was 1970s, right? A, uh, a white man killed by a young Vietnamese man. He surprisingly was acquitted, but this sets off a, a firestorm, right? I guess mainly or in part because uh, the dead man, Billy Joe Applin, uh, was a member of the Klan. Um, so enter, I guess, the... Uh, I guess he'd be the dragon of the title. Uh, he's, he's he the grand dragon of Texas or something. Lewis Beam Jr., tell us about him. Lewis Beam Jr., uh, you know, this he casts a pretty twisted shadow over over U.S. history. He, um, he was born and raised in Texas, uh, already was, I mean, I found accounts that he was trying to re- recruit his fourth grade history class to the to the Ku Klux Klan, so he was already quite sympathetic as a kid. Uh, but he deployed to Vietnam uh, as a door gunner, which was the most sort of dangerous role in the entire war, arguably. Certainly highest casualty count. And uh, comes back highly decorated, and as Saigon falls, and he, he gets a tattoo saying born to lose and he he has a kind of unbridled rage against his US against his own government for losing the war that he felt that they they were winning. And by this point, as I said, he was already quite extreme, but he cast around a, a number of different sort of extremist organizations until he settled on the Klan and quickly rose through the ranks to become the grand dragon of the Texas Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, where he in addition to sort of his demagoguery, he also uh, organized something called the Texas Emergency Reserve, but a militia that was training throughout the state that had active duty members from Fort Hood in it, and they would they would train in, in biological warfare and and all kinds of different uh, you know combat approaches and things like that, um, ambushes and. It's I mean, there's time, it's tempting to kind of smirk at this now, but in the kind of fever dreams of the Ku Klux Klan of the late 70s, there was, and this was a period of great resurgence for the white supremacy movement after the after the Vietnam War. They 
believed that the U.S. government and the U.S. military had gotten so weak that they, the United States was vulnerable to being taken over by the Soviet Union, and that the only group that would be willing or capable of repelling the Soviets would be the Ku Klux Klan and militias like Lewis Beams. And so, and then once they did that, they were going to take over the country and become the kind of rightful leaders of it. So this is the this is the mentality, and this is the this is not just a bunch of dudes sitting around, you know, a a case of Bud Light ranting about minorities. They're they're actively training in camps, and they're um, you know quite a an effective. Uh, force of terror in the state and when they were when this conflict intensified in the early 80s so like by 1981 at the beginning of 1981 the conflict had basically moved up to Galveston Bay and the the state government the federal government they were profoundly worried that there was going to be more killing there were all of these threats being issued against the Vietnamese they were frantically sending in mediators to try to broker peace between these two camps. And then in sales, Lewis Beam and, and his clan in, into the fray. Mm. What uh, what kinds of things did they do? I mean, I, I'm looking at some photographs of, uh, uh, for example, there's a, there, there's a uh, chilling photograph of, a, of, I guess this is a, a fisher boat, fishing boat. Yep. With uh, with some uh, people in clan dress, others in t-shirts, um, and I think they're harassing the uh, the Vietnamese boats. Yes, this is a the the clan had boat patrols in Galveston Bay. Again, this is not the fifties. This is 1981, where there's ten or fifteen heavily armed and robed clansmen roaming through Galveston Bay. Uh, they had an effigy of a Vietnamese refugee hanging from one of the outriggers uh, beneath the, the flag of the Confederacy, and just looking for Vietnamese to, to frighten and to, and to you know terrorize. Essentially, that there was a there was a very public campaign where Louis Beam, the Grand Dragon, and, and this was not just the Klan. He had tons of non-clan white allies who were helping out. There'd be a rally with seven or eight hundred people where they would torch an effigy of a Vietnamese boat and they would chant white power and they the Grand Dragon gave the clan or gave the Vietnamese 90 days to get off that coast or else there would be blood, blood, blood. Um, they burned crosses, they drove into into the parking lots of Vietnamese fish houses and and brandished weapons. They shot at Vietnamese homes. They stole stuff from Vietnamese boats, like their nets and CB equipment. And about 60% of the Vietnamese that were there were basically putting, they were making plans to leave. They put for sale signs on their boats and, uh, you know, they were planning on fleeing once again. And I always, I always feel the need to, to, to kind of state the obvious because I don't, maybe it's not that obvious anymore, but, you know, there's been this kind of, this nasty and pernicious 
myth that anyone that comes to this country must just be coming here to steal jobs from white people, that it's all part of some government plot and some, some you know, this used to be really obscure ideology on the extreme right wing, and now it's become kind of mainstreamed, this kind of idea of the replacement theory and all of this. Um, but, you know, no one wants to become a refugee. No one listening to this this broadcast would want to be driven from the country, the only country that they've known, where their ancestors are buried, where their home is, where they've been making plans for their children's future, to then, with all love to Galveston Bay and the Texas coast, to then end up in these little towns there with nothing, living 15 people to a trailer. And it's not like we have a big kind of... Uh, red carpet that we roll out for refugees. You get a couple hundred bucks at the beginning, and then you're on your own. So the Vietnamese didn't want to be there, and now all of a sudden they're they're doing everything we asked of them. They're not going on welfare. They're 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 all pooling their resources and and working hard. And now as a result of that, they've got the Ku Klux Klan chasing them around the bay, telling them to get out. And so a lot of them were really fed up with this. They they weren't going to fight back um, with violence, uh, but they were, many of them were planning on fleeing until this charismatic colonel from the South Vietnamese army, uh, who had just kind of by coincidence uh, relocated there, he had bought a fish house and he was kind of hoping for some peace and quiet after 22 years of combat. But as soon as he got there, he was kind of anointed their leader and he's the one that organized the Vietnamese to, not to flee, but to stand their ground uh, and in an unusual way, they they stood their ground by placing their trust in the Constitution of the United States. Hmm. Yeah, you couldn't make this up. Um, <laughs> into the fray comes Colonel uh, Nam Van Nguyen, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, t- tell me a little bit more about him. This guy is an extraordinary human being. Um, he was born into a a prominent family in 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 Vietnam in, in the South, um, and entered military school um, as a you know teenager, and then very quickly was rose to the ranks uh, to such an extent that I mean he, you know he came to the United States twice um, for special forces training and and other things at Fort Benning, and so you know just to my earlier point, like if he really had wanted to to stay in America, he might have tried then to stay, but he, he returned to the fight, was shot, he was mortared, he was, you know, nearly lost everything, but he was planning on fighting to the death. Um, um, he shaved all of his hair off in this kind of ceremonial rite in preparation for the last battle. Um, but when he got to the front, all of his men had melted away already, and so he returns to Saigon, loads his, his wife and, and parents and, and other family members up on one of these boats. He's still in uniform, still has his weapon, um, but they, one of his family members, I think they took the car keys from him, chucked it into the, into the water, and, and they essentially pulled him onto the boat as it was pulling away. So he had no plans on becoming a refugee, but he, within a couple months of that, moment he was pumping gas uh at an exxon station in san antonio for three dollars an hour after commanding thousands of men 
Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Um, I wonder, before we go to break, I wonder if you'd tell me about uh, Morris Dees. I think we're, we're somewhat familiar with him. We're familiar with the Southern Poverty Law Center. I didn't, I didn't know some of the things about him. Uh, uh, he, the fact that he had, uh, um, I guess, founded a cookbook publishing house <laughs> pri- that, previ- that's right. previous to this. Yeah, I mean, Morris was a, you know, he grew up sort of below the poverty line outside of Montgomery, Alabama, and, you know, had number of Klansmen in his family, um, and he had a, a front row seat to the the birth of the Civil Rights Movement in Montgomery there, uh, but he basically sat it out, just looked the other way, um, didn't do anything about it. He had a he had a he ended up getting a law degree, but never really used it. He, he was just uh, obsessed with making money and making his mark and so by the time he was 30 he he was a multi multi-millionaire for selling cookbooks and a number of other i mean he sold anything you could sell um and so it wasn't until he was 30 or 31 that he he was he announced he was going to retire to the practice of law and that's when he uh, soon thereafter he he started taking on civil rights work and that's when he founded the Southern Poverty Law Center and, a, and he was—he's the one that saw the the photo of that Klan boat patrol one morning, and hopped on his motorcycle and and went down to meet with Colonel Nam to to help him uh, battle the Klan. That's amazing. So this became an epicenter. This is a very small town in uh, in, in uh, southern Texas, right? Uh, yeah. You mentioned earlier the Vietnamese decided to put their faith in the Constitution. I, I think they went to court, right? That's right. I mean they. You know, of all of all refugee groups resettled here, the the, the Vietnamese were um, quite familiar with 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 war and with with dealing with threats and and with fighting. Um, and but you know, to their eternal credit, uh, they didn't respond to all of these death threats by going off and issuing a bunch of death threats of their own. Or brandishing weapons the other way, they 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 organized something called the Vietnamese Fishermen's Association. Colonel Nam was the head of that. He would meet regularly with the governor, with local law enforcement, with with the Justice Department, with any of the. He met with the Grand Dragon of the Klan, Louis Beam. He met with people that despised him, just trying to keep a lid on the situation, um, even though he knew that there were active plans to assassinate him. Um, and so he had safe houses throughout this tiny town of Seabrook where he had his various family members stashed in different homes and none of them knew where the other family members were. But he, he and the, the members of the Vietnamese Fishermen's Association sued the Ku Klux Klan and all of the white shrimpers who had allied with them um, seeking an emergency injunction from the U.S. government to basically say to the, these Klansmen, buzz off, stop harassing us, we have every right to be here, um, just leave us in, in peace. And, and that lawsuit, which is the, sort of the, the, the center passage of the book, was an astonishing and kind of, I mean, I found it thrilling just because it... it you had lawyers wearing body armor, and they were they were checking for car bombs under their 
under their, the chassis of their vehicle every time they came out of a deposition. They were Klansmen hiding guns under their robes uh, during depositions. And uh, it, this was never a slam dunk. This was never a clear uh, expectation that the Vietnamese would prevail. But they 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 decided to to take the Klan on um, in part because. I think they recognized that if if they fled, if the Vietnamese shrimpers fled, then the Klan and Louis Beam would have felt emboldened to then go take on the, you know, any other industry, any other group of people where, you know, the, the Vietnamese were getting into, they were opening up a bunch of florist shops around Texas, and, and they thought, well, maybe they'll go after the florist next. And, and so I think they saw themselves as a sort of... Uh, you know, rampart to hold here and to hold the clan back, and they and they did so uh, sort of amazingly. It is an amazing story. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment. Uh, I want to follow uh, up. Uh, with, of course, have you talk about Diane Wilson, fascinating character. Um, her her fight for to, to clean up the environment. Um, but when we come back, uh, I want to have you tell me a little bit more about Lewis Beam. Unfortunate connections to today, right? Uh, there's through Lewis Beam, you connect this history that we've been talking about with January 6th, for example, just recently. Uh, let's have more following the break. We're talking with uh, Kirk Wallace Johnson, author most recently. This is just out The Fisherman and the Dragon. And uh, this book contains uh, some of the story that we've been talking about just now. Uh, we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We have another 10 minutes or so left with Kirk Wallace Johnson, author most recently. This is uh, just out, The Fisherman and the Dragon, which tells the story, a uh, true story, of white fishermen and Vietnamese shrimpers clashing on the Texas coast in the 1970s and 80s, which, t- with timely themes of racism, xenophobia, the origins of the modern white supremacist movement, fallout from American wars and plight of refugees, also climate change and shrinking natural uh, resources. So, Kirk Wells Johnson, I uh, wanted to have, to have you talk a little bit more about uh, Lewis Beam Jr. He's the the Grand Dragon of the the clan in in Texas, uh, figured heavily in this story, um, and uh, bring this to today. Uh, he has been called the Godfather of the alt right, for example. Yeah, that's right. Um, he after suffering a defeat in in court here. Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm giving a spoiler away, but the the Vietnamese prevailed. Um, his militia in Texas was was broken apart, and he fled to the compound of the Aryan Nations in in Idaho, where he set out uh, to work writing a, a collection of essays. Um, one of which was, I think, inspired in part by this defeat where it was called leaderless resistance, but where he said, look, we don't, we don't need to have these big rallies anymore and these big meetings that are liable to be infiltrated by the feds. You guys know what the mission is. Just go and do it whenever you, you think the time is right. And so this became, you know, he became known as sort of the, the leading proponent of the lone wolf uh, strategy, which is has a pretty sordid tale. No one's been able to decisively uh, link this to him, but there's an, it's hard to read a book about Oklahoma City bombing without Lewis Beam's name coming up um, as possibly 
you know, his ideology inspiring some of that. Um, this was a, you know, the, at, when I, at the time when I was writing this, I thought, oh, maybe this is going to seem too obscure to, to Americans. But it, as I'm reading about, you know, people begging for refugee bans and, and blaming sort of the, the weakest people amongst us um, for, for our problems, um, I was reading the, the literature of the white supremacist movement more than I ever cared to, um, but just to research it. And every time there was an article about uh, the evils of Vietnamese shrimpers, there were frequently articles about the American wall that needed to be built. And this is 1981 about, and there were schematics on, you know, how to electrify the wall and where, where are you going to dig the moat and all of this. And so these, these themes are, are, they may feel new to a lot of Americans in the last five or six years or so, but they've been coursing through this country, um, you know, just just scratch the surface and, and they're there. And, and oftentimes it's it's a demagogue like Lewis Beam that knows just where to scratch and how to how to get it bubbling up. Um, so, you know, he's a he's a, a nasty dude who who whipped up a whole bunch of people in, in hatred um, and even though they lost in this court battle and, you know, brought all of the whites that allied with the Klan, you know, they brought shame to their, their name and to their communities. And guess what? It turns out it didn't matter, that it didn't, it didn't, didn't achieve anything. And these bays now are, I mean, this is, there's hardly any shrimping left now in these bays along the Texas coastline. Um, this is known as the, the Cancer Belt of the United States, people there have something like 160 times the cancer rate as the rest of the country. Um, I, I was able, by the end of my reporting, to be able to tell who worked at what plant in the off-season based on the type of cancer that they had. Uh, and so to me, there's something tragic about this whole story in that you had a you had a villain here. You had something that was clearly doing damage to this way of life and killing it off, and they just diagnosed the, the wrong threat. Except there was one woman who you mentioned, Diane Wilson. She was the sole female shrimper, as best as I can tell, along that entire coastline, who all along the way kept saying, guys, the Vietnamese aren't your problem. It's the plants. Help me fight the plants. And she kept saying this, she kept trying, and she was she lost nearly everything. I mean, her marriage blew up, she became a pariah in town. People, you know, someone shot her dog, shot her home, sabotaged her boat, and she became kind of public enemy number one in this on this Texas coastline just because she was trying to gather the evidence and to, to bring a suit against these serial polluters. And she... Ultimately, after an astonishing campaign, which is now three decades and running, um, just she just made history a couple of years ago with the largest settlement in U.S. history under the Clean Water Act against one of these repeat offenders, Formosa Plastics, um, where now she represents really like one of the last best hopes for any fisherman, whether they're white or Vietnamese on this coastline, because with that settlement money, she's trying to clean up the bays and to rebuild the, the shrimping and crabbing infrastructure that just kind of uh, disappeared over the last several decades. 
Uh, tell me about how she got involved in this. Why? Uh, I, I think, you know, it wasn't immediately that she jumped in. She had suspicions for, for, for a time, right? But uh, there's, I guess there's a big decision there. I, I think she had to know there'd be pushback, there'd be problems. Uh, maybe not to the extent that they became her problems, but um, I don't know why she got involved here. Yeah, yeah, she, I mean, you're right. She, she was a, she, so she was a fourth generation shrimper. She'd been working these bays since she was five or six years old. And she was seeing the same thing the other shrimpers and crabbers were, except she, she started building a kind of collection of the specimens. She kept them in the back of a fish house freezer where she would write down the, the date and the location that this, mutated shrimp um, was was pulled up. And she didn't really have a plan for why she was doing this. She just suspected that it was important, that it was evidence of something. But it wasn't until maybe a decade, after a decade of doing this, that in the summer of 1989, she opens up the local paper. And on the front page are the results of the, the first ever released uh, toxic release inventory, which was the first time the federal government required big industry, energy industry, and these other chemical plants to report on their mishaps and on their accidental discharges and all of this. And lo and behold, her tiny county of Calhoun County, population to maybe 20,000 people, was rated the most toxic county in the entire United States. This is where she was raising her five kids, um, and her dad, I think, at that point was already sick from cancer. And so it, they're seeing it in this sort of table form on the front page of this little paper, like everything just crystallized for her. She balled up that paper in a rage. She threw it against the wall and then stomped down to, to City Hall and asked for a meeting. And she had no clue what she was going to do at that meeting, but very quickly... Those first steps and that first meeting are what set her on this this path that has completely redefined her life now. Mm. Um, uh, maybe have you tell me briefly about uh, the research for the book. This is uh, in, in and of itself kind of pulse pounding. In fact, you say in an interview that um, uh, if you'd have started just a few months later with your research, uh, you wouldn't have got to some of these figures who who, who died. I'm I'm certain that that's the case. The the in in some of these interviews, and this is a just so your listeners can understand. This is a I mean the last probably 50 pages of the book alone are all end notes um, because I know I'm dealing with sensitive stuff here about racism, about corporate pollution, and all this. And so there's an exhaustive uh, set of citations. But there were so many instances where it took me, you know, it took me a year and a half to get um, some people to speak. And I'd race down to Texas with my recorder, do a five or six hour interview with them on day one, get some confession for a 40 year old crime on day two, fly home. And then six months later, they were, they had passed. And so I, I really do feel like this, I'd, I got on this story just in the nick of time, and I and I'm, you know. But this was a, I think in the in the end there were, 
you know, maybe 2,000 pages of transcripts just from my own interviews. There were thousands and thousands of pages of court depositions that no one has seen. Um, I got documents to the Freedom of Information Act from the FBI and ATF. So, um, you know, this is this all happened 40 years ago, but I was I had a kind of an embarrassment of riches when it came to uh, reporting at the time and all these transcripts, but also just people deciding that they were finally ready to tell me what they did. We just have about a minute left. Uh, I wonder what you what you hope the big takeaway, the readers takeaway from your book. You know, I really think um, we we are at this moment. There's not an industry in this country that where you you won't find some people that are concerned about where the country's going or why aren't their their own children following them into their own business. And you know, there's a lot of despair. I think. But if somebody is telling you that the reason for that is um, a refugee whose country just disappeared overnight or a migrant worker who's picking strawberries in the field, maybe don't listen to them. Maybe take a look at your own community. Maybe take a look at the senators who are, who are giving all of these incentives and tax abatements for these big industries to come in and, and push yours out of the way. Um, it will never you know, cease to, to amaze me how quickly we seem to be willing to turn our sights on the weakest amongst us while while squinting and looking past the, the true culprits around us. Well, we'll uh, leave it there. Uh, it's a fascinating history, the, the Fisherman and the Dragon. It's out now. Kirk Wallace Johnson is the author. We've just scratched the surface here. Read the rest in the book, of course. And uh, Kirk Wallace Johnson is author previously of The Feather Thief, and To Be a Friend is uh, Fatal. Kirk Wallace Johnson, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Oh, it's a real honor. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah Today.